0: Hello, listeners. Welcome to Itihasa, an Indic history podcast, and you're listening to episode 28 of the season Vijayanagara. In the last episode, we explored Philip Wagner's research paper, which argued that the Vijayanagara rulers, in the interest of real politics, at some point embraced the Islamic form of costumes. Like Kabai, Kulai, and few other aspects of the Islamicate political language without actually becoming Islamic. We tried explaining this phenomenon with the term Islamicization, which we saw was very different from the term Islamization. The adoption of Islamicizing forms of courtly dress is in fact paralleled by the appropriation of Islamicate modes of political language. And the most striking instance of which appears in Vijayanagara rulers adoption of the title Hindu Raya Suratrana which literally meant Sultan among Hindu kings. In this episode we will resume our analysis of Philip Wagner's research paper on this topic and look at the aspect of political language and the role it played in the Vijayanagara's royal court and its polity. We will finally see how all of this served a specific purpose of helping a Hindu empire navigate and thrive in an age of sultans. The main source for this episode is the same research paper by Philip Wagner that we saw in the last episode. And in addition to that, I have also referred to the South Indian inscriptions volume 16 published in 1972. Let us look at the inscription number 4 from the Kadiri Taluk, Anantapur district in Andhra Pradesh. This epigraph was found in 1906 on a slab set up near the south wall of the Mandapa in front of the central shrine of the Lakshmi Narasimha temple. This epigraph is dated Saka 1274 which translates to 1352 CE, October 20th to be precise. It records that Pandavasannayani Chellinayaka completed the construction of the Mandapa of Aubhaladeva temple in Kadiri when Veera Bukkanna Udaya was ruling at Dwarasamudra Samudra and Penukunda. Bukkanna Udaya is none other than one of the heroes of the foundation series, Bukkaraya. He was the brother of Harihara I and one of the founding brothers of Vijayanagara. As of 1352 CE, Bukka's brother Harihara I was still alive and ruling as the first Vijayanagara emperor. It wasn't until 1356 CE that Bukkaraya ascended the lion's throne after the death of his brother. But the interesting aspect of this inscription that is relevant to this episode is in the first few lines. And let me read the line we are interested in from that inscription. The original inscription is in Telugu as it was etched in Andradeysa province of Vijayanagara. The line in Telugu Goes like this. Quote, Sriman Mahamanda Ariraya Vibhada, Hinduraya Suratrana. Unquote. We already know that Bukkaraya in 1352 CE was ruling the important cities of Pinukunda and the old Hoyasala capital, Dwarasamudra, as Mahamanda Leshwara of those regions. The interesting word in this line is. Hinduraya Suratrana This word is the first documented use by a Vijayanagara ruler as one of the royal titles. It basically means Sultan among the Hindu kings. In one form or another, this title continued in use by Bukka's successors for at least another 250 years. Through the three dynasties, until as late as the early 17th century, which is right before the final collapse of Vijayanagara. The interesting thing is, the word Induraya Suratrana presents a problem to historians who had glossed lightly over this title, mentioning its use without detailed comments. Let us look at an excerpt by Vasundhara Philiozat who is one of the foremost experts on Vijayanagara history in the world. She has this to say about this strange word. Quote, This word Hinduraya Suratrana presents difficulties. Neither in Sanskrit nor in Kannada does it yield a satisfactory sense. We must assume that Suratrana represents a Sanskritization of the Muslim title Sultan. A phonetic transliteration independent of any meaning. In the same way, Suratalu would represent an equivalent transliteration in Kannada. One thus obtains the more satisfactory meaning of Sultan of Hindu Kings, a title which would have been given to Bukka by his Muslim neighbors. Unquote. Now let us look at yet another excerpt. This one is by Hermann Kulke, a German historian and Indologist, who was awarded the Padmashri Award by the President of India in 2010 for his contributions towards research on Indian history. Quote, The meaning of this title Hindu Raya Suratrana is not very clear, but it is quite likely that the early kings of Vijayanagara laid claim to a status among the Hindu Rajas Equal to that of sultans among the Muslim rulers. If you observe those excerpts, both Vasundara and Herman are effectively saying that the title has the effect of emptying the term sultan of any specific cultural connotations and content. In short, Vijayanagara rulers weren't claiming actually to be sultans, instead, they were merely suggesting that they are like sultans with respect to the status they claim as paramount rulers. But Philip Wagner in his research disagrees with this explanation of both Herman and Vasandara. As a counter to this, he presents the evidence of two inscriptions from the same period as the previous one we saw for Taluk. In those inscriptions, Philip points out that the word Hinduraya is dropped And Bukkaraya is described simply as Suratalu or Suratrana. With this as evidence, he says that without the qualification word before the title Suratrana, it is difficult to see how it could still function in the way both Harman and Vasundara had suggested. And it is here that he puts forward his own theory, and which I must say is mighty convincing on the face of it. So Philip instead suggests that both the titles Sultan and Sultan among Hindu Kings were used in a much more literal and direct sense as a means of announcing that the Vijayanagara ruler could actually be considered a Sultan, not in terms of relative political standing but in terms of substance and style. The title Hindu Raya Suratrana would have served to differentiate the Vijayanagara rulers who bore the title from ordinary Hindu kings by signalling their willingness to participate in the political discourse of Islamicate civilization. This is a really interesting point and one has to wonder why would the Vijayanagara rulers be so willing to take on this title. It is because of the loud fact that Muslim polities and kingdoms had risen to a position of dominance within much of South Asia by the Vijayanagara period and it was no longer sufficient for a South Indian ruler to articulate his claims to legitimacy solely within a traditional Indic or indigenous idiom and political language. It's like the British Rajara when the Indian rulers had to learn the new political language to talk and negotiate with their new colonial masters or one can even say how most of the developed in the developing world today talks in a similar political language that the United States can understand. In short, the then prevailing dominant force on a global scale tends to set the rules of the conversations that take place between the dominant and the dominated. So a nation or a civilization irrespective of whether it calls the shots or not on a smaller scale has to choose to toe the line if it has to be accepted as a legitimate participant at the geopolitical table at a global level. By the early Vijayanagara era, not only was most of central North India under the hegemony of the Delhi Sultanate, but many other Muslim states had become dominant along the Delhi Sultanate's frontiers as well, like we saw in the earlier episodes. Vijayanagara's immediate neighbors to the north the Bahmanis of Gulbarga and Bidar and its splinter successor states Ahmadnagar Bijapur and Golconda ended up setting the medium of the political language a political language which Vijayanagara rulers had to take into consideration if they wanted to be accepted by not just the dominant Islamic polities but also by the political and trade representatives from the Muslim world, who were constantly at the Vijayanagara court. It's also important to note that by the Vijayanagara age, the sphere of reference was no longer confined to just the Indian subcontinent. The international trading systems were defined by the Indian Ocean and in particular the port of Batkal, one of the most important Vijayanagara ports on the Kanara coast. The Batkal port had served as a critical commercial point and connected Vijayanagara Empire into a global trade network that extended all the way from the South China coast in the east to the ports of the Persian Gulf and Red Sea in the west. If you remember, I had discussed in the previous episodes about the crucial warhorse trade in the Arabian Sea and Indian Ocean on which Vijayanagara depended for its military needs. Most of these horses were shipped to Bhatkal port and then transported by road to Hampi. So considering the Vijayanagara army's critical dependence on this long-distance trade, one can expect the Vijayanagara court to have developed an interest in the affairs of the other states trading in or bordering on the Indian Ocean. And this, in fact, was the case. There is evidence of an awareness of the most important contemporary imperial house in Iran and Central Asia the Timurids as suggested by the fact that Devaraya too eagerly sought out an ambassador from Shahrukh his Timurid contemporary in Herat who had been sent on a diplomatic mission to Calicut on the Malabar coast So Philip Wagner says that when viewed against this background the usage of the title Sultan of Hindu Kings or Hinduraya Suratrana may be seen as a part of an effort to highlight and expand the rhetoric of South Indian Vijayanagara kingship by framing and glossing it in terms of the Islamic political language that dominated the Indian Ocean. If this interpretation of his is correct, it then becomes possible to identify the reasons which could have led organically to the inevitable adoption of certain elements from the Islamicate system of dressing that we saw in the last episode. The first reason which would account for the adoption of the kabai which is the long white tunic may be attributed to the sharply opposing views about the human body that underscore the Islamicate and traditional Indian systems of dressing. In the indigenous Indic system prior to the impact of Islam, the human body was viewed as an integral part of the individual and hence was considered to reflect the inner state and qualities of the individual. So, within such a cultural setting, the function of clothing is not for hiding the body but to reveal, frame and accentuate its form. This in a way explains the function of the traditional Indic upper garment. A cloth draped loosely over the shoulders, for example, Or the body fitting dress of a Bharatanatyam dancer that accentuates and highlights her graceful legs and beautiful well-toned figure. And to this attitude, the Islamicate system of dressing stands in direct opposition. In Islam, the uncovered body is held to be naked and shameful. And clothing is said to have been provided by Allah to cover man's nakedness and shame. Clearly a purpose achieved by the many kinds of tunics, sherwanis and loose robes which hide the underlying body shape define the Islamicate system of dressing. Hence given these opposing attitudes about dressing styles and systems, one may conclude that the minimal dressing style of South Indian rulers would have appeared vulgar, shameful, immodest and barbaric by the Islamicate cultural standards which meant if the Vijayanagara rulers were indeed serious about presenting themselves as sultans among the Hindu kings, they would have found it necessary to adopt a style of dressing that confirmed with the Islamicate norms of modesty and public decorum. And it is for this reason that Philip in his research strongly argues that the kabai had become the standard upper garment Worn publicly at the Vijayanagara court. To bolster his theory, he quotes Abdul Razak Samarkandi's Chronicles from Matlayesa Iddiyan that dates back to 1442 CE. Let's look at Abdul Razak's initial observations about Indians in the south after he first arrives in Calicut to meet its local ruler or Zamarin. Quote, a strange nation neither men nor demons, at meeting whom the mind would go mad. Had I seen the likes of them in a dream, my heart would have been upset for years." Right off the bat, we have to call out the generous amounts of contempt and racism in this foreign visitor's observations about Indians. Clearly the scant clothing of the Hindus down south was troubling for him and this is even more evident after he contrasts them against the dress of the Muslim traders living there, which he observes as wearing fine clothing in the Arab fashion and indulge in ceremony of all sorts. The contempt for the indigenous culture and ways of dressing blatantly reflected in his lack of enthusiasm in the special reception he was accorded upon his arrival by the local ruler. This ends up translating into a not-so-kind assessment of the vassals' manners and abilities. Interestingly, when the Vijayanagara Emperor learnt about a diplomatic visitor in Calicut from the court of Shahrukh of Samarkand, the Vijayanagara ruler immediately summoned him to Hampi. It was at Hampi that Abdul Razag was accorded a very gracious reception at the court of Devaraya too. The ambassador's long and generous account of Devaraya II in Hampi presents a striking contrast to the unenthusiastic description of the Zamarin of Calicut. It's not hard to decipher why Abdul changed his perception about Indians so soon. It was because of his observations that the Vijayanagara ruler was not only well versed in the finer points of etiquette, but also presented himself as a no naked Hindu, but as someone properly dressed in a kabai that suits a king or sultan. And this allowed Abdul Razak to legitimately compare Devaraya II with his own ruler Shahrukh of Samarkand or any other Islamic ruler. In short, the foreign and Muslim ambassador had finally arrived to the right place to find a sultan among Hindu kings. It is also worth pointing out that the garments like kabai and kolai began to gain prominence as transactional symbols in courtly rituals at Vijayanagara. While the use of transactional symbols and items as such is well documented in the traditional Indic sphere before the arrival of Islam in India but in Vijayanagara period, this Practice was adapted and modified in a way that it confirmed with Islamicate practice much more than before. So the items like native turbans and kanduvas which are upper body cloth were replaced by kabai and kulai instead. This modification in the ritual also played well into the large presence of Turkic mercenaries serving in the Vijayanagara army. Resident Ambassadors representing neighbouring Muslim states and the Muslim traders from Arabia and Persian Gulf. The 17th century Telugu ethno-historical classic Raya Vachakamu which details the reign of Krishnadevaraya records several instances of the presentation of kabai and kulai as gifts of honour. It speaks of how the emperor honours his minister Saluvatimmarasu by giving him the seven worthy gifts. A kulai, a kabaya, a necklace, a pair of pearl earrings, a yellow shawl, fragrant musk and a pan. In light of all this information, Philip Wagner argues strongly as to how and why the kabai and kulai came to be used at the Vijayanagara court. And how by the 14th century the political landscape of South India had changed drastically as many Muslim states became well entrenched in the Upper Deccan and the peninsula became more thoroughly integrated into the commercial world of the Indian Ocean. This in turn then convinced Vijayanagara's early Sangama dynasty rulers to adopt titles and modes of dressing to participate in the larger political conversation with the Islamic world that was dominating a significant part of the world. Having said that, it is important to stress again that this adoption of an Islamicate system didn't fully replace the traditional Indic system of either dressing or the political language. What happened was the context in which both of them were used had only changed. There was a clear distinction made by the Vijayanagara's courtly and royal elite between residential and performative domains. A good analogy would be a person wearing a business formal to an important client meeting at the corporate office and the same person changing into a traditional kurta pajama when he visits a temple. So the Vijayanagara rulers and the royal elite continued to wear the traditional Indian and Hindu dressing in their private royal households during leisure and during traditional rituals and they wore wore kabai and kulai when they participated in royal processions, returning from a battle or while attending the royal court. Finally Philip Wagner in his thesis also very deftly ties in the narrative of the religious conversion of Harihara and Bukka brothers to Islam after the fall of Kampili and then turning apostates. If listeners remember, we looked at this narrative and saw the problems with it in the Foundation series. While we explored the possibility of Sangama brothers being Tughlaq vassals at some point and then didn't find it fully convincing, Philip Wagner believes that they might have been vassals at one point indeed of Tughlaqs, but categorically refutes the whole idea of their conversion to Islam. He points out how the old manuscripts Rajakala Narnaya and Vidyaranya Kala the two most frequently cited sources for the conversion story. He says that these sources never in reality had anything to say about a specific conversion story and that they were misinterpreted almost certainly. And he suggests an alternative theory that the Tughlaq Sultan, impressed with the Sangama brothers, display of trustworthiness rewards them by giving land in Karnataka and as commanded by the Sultan they happily go to rule their new territory. So Philip suggests that instead of reading those manuscripts as a record of religious conversion, one ought to read it as a key component in the foundation myth of the Islamicized Vijayanagara state. That is, tracing the political authority of the kingdom's rulers to its founder's supposed history of service to Delhi Sultanate. Philip then claims that the unusual narrative of the established communal view of Vijayanagara as the last bastion of Hindu religion becomes weaker when looked at through the lens of Islamicization of the state's political and material culture. And this is where I have to disagree with Philip Wagner as I feel he is stretching his theory now to fit his own ideological biases against the supposedly communal or not-so-secular narrative. In my own understanding, what he means to infer by linking the foundation of Vijayanagara with islamicization is that the civilizational fault lines between Hindus and Muslims are a product of modern politics, and that in the past there was no such tension that influenced or led to the events that gave birth Vijayanagara as a defender against Islamic onslaught. It is one thing to say that Vijayanagara embraced some aspects of the Islamic culture due to the unique circumstances of the age. And a totally different thing to say that Vijayanagara's foundation ought to be looked through the Islamic aid lenses, thereby ignoring the horrors of the Islamic invasions which the subcontinent was subjected to prior to Vijayanagara and the resulting resistance that was put up by the South Indian rulers and populace alike against it in a desperate fight for survival. The fact that Bukka's son and prince Kampanna immediately followed up the foundation with the incessant campaigns to bring down the 50-year anomaly of genocidal Madurai Sultanate in 1378 AD speaks volumes of the Vijayanagara's credentials as being a bulwark against Islamic onslaughts in the South. If one puts aside the unnecessary extrapolation of Philip Wagner's otherwise fantastic theses and his attempts to brush aside the civilizational fault lines, rest of his theses provides some profound insights into Vijayanagara polity and culture. Finally, I would like to end this episode with an relevant excerpt from a young and upcoming Indian historian, Manu S. Pillai's opinion piece in Liveman.com, by the title of Hindu Sultans and Padshas. Quote As part of imperial bombast, Hindu Raya Suratrana was essentially employed in Vijayanagara through a stray reference that evidently appears also in a 1439 inscription in Sadri, Rajasthan. But the Sanskrit translation of Sultan as Suratrana itself was not a Vijayanagara innovation. In 1323 AD, ghyasuddin Tughlaq appears as a Suratrana Giyasuddinak. And three years before Bukka, we find the term in Nepal. After his invasion in 1349, Shamsuddin of Bengal was remembered there as Suratrana Shamsiddhina. The term was in vogue even in the 17th century, used to describe the Mughals. And yet, some deny any connection between the Sanskrit term and its Arabic root. Suratrana to them comes from Sura, which means God, and Trana, which means protector which would mean that Bukkariya saw himself as a protector of Hindu deities and was not borrowing an Islamic title. The etymology could be entertained, but the fact is that, in practice, the words were certainly used synonymously. Where the Delhi Sultanate's coins used the Arabic Sultan on one side, the reverse was inscribed in Sanskrit with Suratina. So too, when literary works referred to the Suratrana of Yoginapura, which is Delhi, it is unlikely they were flattering Muslim kings as guardians of Hindu gods. In the larger picture of the interaction Islam had with India's diversity of traditions and cultures, this indigenization of a foreign title is hardly surprising. Unquote. So if one compares the narratives offered by Vasundhara, Herman, Philip and Manu S. Pillai, Manu S. Pillai's narrative is very similar to Vasundhara and Hermans, when it comes to the term Hindu Raya Suratrana. And when one puts together all of these narratives, it becomes really easy to debunk the attempts of some overzealous Hindu Indologist's attempts to appropriate or should I say attempts to deny the Arabic origin of the word and its eventual indigenization with the help of Sanskrit. And with this, we shall end this episode. And I sincerely hope the listeners enjoyed this in-depth episode on culture and politics of Vijayanagara. If you did, please hit the subscribe button and leave a rating and a review wherever it is that you are listening. A huge thank you for taking the time to listen to the show. I hope to see you soon in the next episode. Till then, this is Narendra Vikram, your host and narrator, signing off. Hope you have a great week ahead.